I'm excited about fall. A couple of reasons why. One, football starts today, unless you're a Patriots fan, and it started on Thursday, and it didn't start out well for you. But, um, you know, it is, uh, is a beautiful thing, fall, and uh, this fall is going to be extremely great for us. I'm excited about it because 42 days from now, we'll be in a different building. And uh, I'm excited to see what God is going to do. And as we're moving forward, th- there's an excitement that is in there. And as it's, it's there, I, I, I have this, this, this whole idea of the owning of the vision and how excited I am. I, I pray that nobody gets this idea that, that the vision was to get into a building. Because this building that we're moving into is merely just going to be a a, a tool for God to use for His glory and His honor. And I'm excited about that. I'm excited to see what God's going to do next. And this week we were over there on, on Friday and doing some cleaning out. And as we did some cleaning out, I was walking out of the building and across the, the parking lot, uh, there's uh, another empty building there. And the realtor that was uh, for the landlord actually came walking out of it. He came over and said, like, Matt, man, what an amazing thing this is. You guys found this space. Because he uh, has been there for different buildings we've looked at throughout Rio Rancho for the last eight months, and nothing has worked. And the whole time, he's like, well, we're trying to find you something, trying to do something. He goes, isn't it just coincidental that this just happened to happen this way? And, and I had a little laugh inside about it all because he's not a believer. And uh, I said, yeah, God works in some crazy coincidences. And he kind of looked at me, and I said, you know, he has this plan that is so much bigger than anything that we could have or anything that we could do. And he laid it out there for us, and, and here we are. And he just kind of looked at me just at that puzzle look and he's like "Uh uh-huh and he walked away and so so uh, it's interesting to kind of watch this play out but as I reminded him that God has a plan and that God has been there from the beginning he knew exactly what he was going to do and he just took his time telling us what we need to do as we follow with him other than just do what he's called us to do and as I looked at that, I thought back to when we talked a couple of, couple of months ago when we were going through the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, and we looked at that, the fact that, that God is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do, and we just have to have faith in that. And as we jump into this own the vision, there's some things that, that scare us a little bit. And, and we can look two sides to it. We can say, the vision that God has for us, he is who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do. And we can believe that in faith and live our lives in faith that he's going to do that or we can start asking the what ifs maybe you've done it in your life i've done it in my life i've done it with this building even as i've reminded the realtor that that god is in control that he is sovereign that he is the one that is there i still ask what ifs in my own life because we also sat down on thursday and we had a finance team meeting as we're sitting there they're starting to prepare the budget for next year and we came to this reality that as we move into this new building guess what it's going to cost us twenty five hundred dollars more a month and there's this fear that kind of came over me just a little bit to say, but God, you don't understand. Our budget hasn't been able to handle that. What are we going to do? And I said, well, at least Jerome can play guitar in the corner. I can't do anything. And so, so how are we going to make this happen? What are we going to do? And, and that what if started to come over me. And then the other what if was, well, we're moving like three miles that way. What if that's just too far for somebody to go? And they just don't want to go that far. So they leave the church. And we get to that what if thinking of what if they decide not to or what if they decide they don't like the way it looks or what if we paint the building and it's not the right color and they're like, oh, I can't be here because the color's wrong or the carpet's wrong or there is no carpet because there's concrete on the floor. All these what ifs started to flood into my mind. And he says, if you're going to own the vision, do you have faith or do you have fear? And for the next few weeks, I I want to talk about this faith versus fear. And as we look in our lives, how faith versus fear 
fills out. What does that look like? How does it look like? And, and all these what ifs as we were looking, this is worry kind of came over me. And I got to thinking about a couple, <coughs> excuse me, they used to live across the street from me. And I don't remember their name. They're an old Italian couple, and they used to sit out on their front porch uh, when I was a little kid, and they had a dog named Sam. That's all I remember was a dog named Sam, a little golden retriever. But the, the lady, she used to always tell me when it came time to worry, she said this, worrying is like sitting in a rocking chair. It'll give you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. And, and I thought about that as she sat in a rocking chair all the time, and, and uh, you know, that's the reality. We can worry about things. We can let these things dominate our thoughts and dominate our minds. But what is it going to do? Where is it going to take us? And I started thinking about the fear that, that is in it. And the fear of trying to own the vision. What's the one thing or at least one of the things that keep us from owning a vision that God has given us in our lives to move forward and go that way? Isn't it fear? Fear about what other people are going to think. Fear about what other people are going to do. Fear about how our families are going to respond. Whatever it might be, there's a fear that is in us. And how do we overcome that? How do we live through that? And, and so for the next four weeks, I want to spend some time, as we talk about owning the vision, this fear versus faith. And I thought today would fall being the, the kickoff where we have the NFL stuff and, and all the things that go with it. I said, what is the, the, the best fear versus faith story that I could come up with that would also tie into football? And there's one that popped into my mind because they talk about it every time. And that is David and Goliath. Don't they always talk about that, that small team? If you watched college football yesterday, this is the weekend where all the, the big powerhouse teams play the little scrub teams, and they dominate them by like 63 to nothing. But every once in a while, like if you're a Michigan fan, you probably remember this like, what, eight, ten years ago when Appalachian State beat them? And everybody went, what? And I know, I'm sorry, I'm just digging that in there for you Michigan fans. But the thing is, is, is we look forward to that. So I want to talk about David versus Goliath today, but the funny thing is, is as I thought about David versus Goliath, I said, everybody knows that story. I mean, everybody knows David versus Goliath. If you've never been to church before, you've only watched one football game, you know David versus Goliath, what that whole thing is. And then I started thinking, do we know David versus Goliath? Because we have this idea that David versus Goliath, the whole story is a young man who had bravery to take on a giant. And, And that partially is it, but that is not the story. And so what I would like for you to do today is if you have your Bible with you, I would love for you to open to 1 Samuel 17 because we're going to read through all 58 verses, all right? And so you might think, oh, great, this is going to be a long sermon. I did my best to cut it down. At one point in time, it was 13 pages. I got it down to eight. So you're going to have to roll with me, and we're going to move right through this, all right? So um, what we're going to do is we're going to look through 1 Samuel 17. As we look through 1 Samuel 17, I'm just going to lay out the first three verses for you. And the first three verses for you are this. There's the Philistines on one side of a hill. There are the Israelites on the other side of a hill. And there's a valley in between them. And in that valley is where the battle is supposed to take place. But a guy on the Philistine side decides he wants to have a one-on-one challenge so everybody doesn't have to die. So that's where we pick up in verse 4. So if you have your Bibles with you, 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 4, it says this. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion. Now, I want to pause right there for just a second. You're like, if you're going to pause every verse, this is going to be a really, really long time. But I promise I won't do it. But that word champion, that word champion that we see there is a description of a guy that is a monster. And the reason why I point that out is this. There is no other chapter in all of the Old Testament that this word champion is used. It is specifically used for a guy by the name of Goliath, named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. 
Okay? Now, you probably know this already, but six cubits in a span is nine foot, nine inches tall. And he's not some lanky nine foot, nine inch tall. Like, you remember when Minute Bull was in the basketball and he was like, Ee! and it was like that weird, or, or uh, Bradley, those guys, you guys are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's okay. I'm a sports guy, so I, I relate to that. Those guys were seven, six. So they still had two more feet to go to get to Goliath. But Goliath was no small dude. And the reason why we know that, because verse 5 tells us what he was wearing. It says this in verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. This whole full body. Like, I've seen pictures of people drawing, and he had a little tunic kind of thing going on. He didn't have a tunic. He had a full body coat of armor. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. I know you're thinking to yourself, I know how much that weighs. I didn't, so I had to look it up. It's 125 pounds of armor. That's it. Just, just the coat of mail was 125 pounds. His armor weighed more than some of the Israelites who were getting ready to fight against him. He was a massive human being. And as we look at that, it said he had bronze armor on his legs, verse 6, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head, which is the point of the spear, weighed 600 shekels of iron. Do you realize that is 15 pounds? For the spear head, 15 pounds. I, I've had the opportunity to have to split wood with a sledgehammer, stuff like that, and use a 15-pound sledge. When you swing a 15-pound sledge, it kind of takes you with you sometimes. Imagine having that as you're getting ready to chuck a spear. That is a monster spear that he's carrying around. And he had a shield bearer that went before him, carrying a 10-foot tall shield. So to get this picture in your mind, so you know that when Goliath shows up to a party, he's going to get noticed. Well, this is about to be a party. And we see this party getting ready to take place. And as he shows up, he stands up and he shouts. Verse 8, he says, he stood and he shouted at the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? What are you guys doing out here? You're not going to win anyway, right? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So basically, here's what we've got. We've got this story. I told you this story is bigger than just a a boy with bravery going against a a, a guy that, that could easily kill him. But he steps up and he takes care of business. This is really a story that is threefold. I'm going to give you the threefold answer up front. That way, if you're a note taker, you can just write that down, be done for the day, and you can just listen to what I have to say. Here it is. The first thing is we have an invincible character. And the reason why I tie this into the threefold story is because this threefold story is throughout the Bible. As a matter of fact, this threefold story is the gospel. And this threefold story, first you have an invincible character. You have Goliath. A monster of a man, nine foot nine. I'm not sure if you guys can even picture that. That's like this short of a basketball rim. Okay, that is a big dude. I've had the opportunity to meet Shaquille O'Neal before, and I've had the opportunity to meet Charles Barkley before. Both of those guys, one was six nine, the other one's seven two. They were massive human beings. I shook Shaquille O'Neal's hand, and literally his finger touched my wrist. And I was like, I feel tiny, and I'm not tiny. And, and the thing is, is as I, I met them, I thought, this is good. these guys are huge. This guy beat them by two and a half, three feet. That is a huge human being. An invincible character is in this. Nobody's going to beat him. And then the second part of the story is you have your impossible challenge. Somebody wants to beat me, 
we'll be your servants. That is impossible. All the guys, as we will see in the story, shook with fear in this. And it's an impossible challenge. We're going to get to that last part with the improbable champion. But I want to show you, like I said, this is the gospel. Because in that, the invincible character is Satan. And the impossible challenge is to defeat death and defeat sin. But there was an improbable character, an improbable champion who came along, who was born in a stable to a poor family that was just a carpenter's family that eventually came up and he defeated death and he defeated Satan. That is the story. That is what we need to hold on to. If there's anything to look at with David and Goliath, that is it. So that's what I want you to see today, but I'm going to explain a little bit farther, because as we see it, you see this, this whole thing start to play out, and Goliath's out there, and in verse 11, a shift changes. It's almost like watching a movie, and they just immediately go to a whole different scene. And in verse 11, you see that, that scene take, and it says, when Saul and Israel heard the words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So they, they shift over to the, the people, and, and Saul who is described in 1 Samuel earlier in the chapters as being head and shoulders above the rest, that's why they chose him as king to begin with, was also afraid. Now let me tell you something that I've learned in the leadership role. If you are afraid, everybody else is not going to want to follow you. If you're afraid, if you're saying, this is impossible, then it's impossible, nobody else is going to want to follow you because who wants to follow a leader that isn't leading? But that's exactly what Saul's doing. And then another shift takes place, and it goes to verse 12. And in verse 12, it cuts to this scene with David. David, who's out in a field. says, now David was a son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul into battle. And the sons' names were, who went into battle, Eliab, the firstborn, the next was Abinadab, and the third was Shema. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Do you realize how long 40 days is? You will, because 40 days from now, we're going to be getting ready to move into a building. But 40 days is a long time. That is over a month of coming out every morning, every evening, and saying, bring it, guys. I'm ready to fight whoever. And their response was, fear. But in this was Jesse saying, David, I need you to run supplies back and forth from your brothers. So we see that in verse 17. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers this sack of parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and this is awesome right here, and bring something back from the battlefield. Little did Jesse know that very soon, David would bring back a head of a nine-foot-nine giant. Not sure if that's what he's expecting, but that's what he's going to get. So verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, and Jesse, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. So... Here's the crazy thing that, that this is probably not too much, but it kind of blows my mind. That David and Jesse, they live about 15 miles from the battlefield, according to all the stuff. He got up in the morning, and by the morning, he was at the battlefield. Well, he didn't jump in his car, didn't ride a chariot. He ran. So the dude's running a half marathon back and forth for his brothers. 
That's pretty impressive, especially when you're getting ready to go fight a giant. Okay, so, so just picture that as you go. And so he gets there in Israel, verse 21, and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went out to greet his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, once again that, that phrase used, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words before, and David heard him. He hadn't heard him before. And the, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. So I want you to picture this. The, the, the entire army of Israel hears Goliath's voice for 40 days, and the response is always the same. They fled. Now, I'm not sure about you, but being a guy, when somebody cowers in fear, there's a little bit of time where you're going to laugh inside. Okay, It's a sick thing that men do. But it's just a reality. Women just, just grasp for that for us. So you have a whole army of these guys and a bunch of little wussy guys that are running away. You're going to laugh just a little bit. That's just going to be your natural response. And they're like, ha, 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 you know, and they go back and they eat their grapes or whatever. They're, I don't know exactly what they're doing. But, and so the, the whole thing is playing out in this. And David is standing there watching it. He hadn't seen any of it this whole 40 days. He'd run back and forth. He'd done all these things. And he sees it. And he's like, guys, what are you, what are you doing? What's going on here? And, and he can't fathom it because in his mind, he hasn't heard all the voices of, oh, we can't do it. He's been off by himself. Isn't that one of the big things when we come to the fear versus faith that we listen to the other voices that say, you can't do it versus listen to God saying, hey, this is my battle and you do what I tell you to do? How many times in our lives do we do that? So we start seeing this and he says, what's going on here? What is going on? I, I don't get it. And in verse 25, Says the men of Israel said to him, Have you seen this man who's come up? Have you not taken a look around to see what in the world's going on? Surely he has come to defy Israel. If you want to take a step, here's what the king's going to do because it's a one on one battle. And it says this King Saul offers three things, and the king will enrich the man who kills him. He's going to be rich. You're going to get paid if you can kill that thing out there. Not only that, you're going to get the king's daughter. Not the greatest prize according to what I've read, but still the king's daughter. Okay? So, so, so th that is, is right there. And then also, you get to be tax-free. Your dad and everybody gets to be tax-free. Now, that's a pretty good bonus, not to ever have to pay taxes again. And David's looking around, and as David looks around, he goes, hang on just a second. And he said to the men, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away, verse 26, takes away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? There's a whole shift here, and the people answer in the same way, so shall it be done for the man who kills him. We already told you what Saul's going to do. And when we look at that, and there's two different ways to see a problem. You can see it for the giant that it is, or you can see it from the way that David sees it. He sees it as an uncircumcised Philistine. Everybody else sees it as a 9'9 nine giant with 125-pound armor and a 15-pound spear. That's what they're seeing. And he says, who's this uncircumcised Philistine that he should stand up against God? How do we see our, excuse me, our circumstance? How do we do that? And get, David gets up, and he's getting a little fired up inside. He's like, I'm not going to take this. And verse 28 says, now Eliab, his eldest brother, and we have to understand this too, that, that in the chapter before, when, when uh, Nathan comes and, and says, the prophet says, hey, uh, one of these boys, Jesse's boys, is going to be king, and it turns out that it's David and not Eliab, because Eliab's the oldest, so he should be the one. 
Shouldn't, shouldn't he be the one? Well, Eliab's probably a little bit upset about that. So that's carrying over here into this next chapter. It says, now Eliab, his oldest brother, is there. And, and it says that when he heard he spoke to the men, Eliab's anger was kindled against David. It's like, you, you took the kingship away from me, and now you're going to stand up and be the one who tries to defeat this guy? Don't be that guy. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, why have you even come down here? What are you doing here? And with whom have you left those few sheep that you're supposed to be working with in the wilderness? Go back to your little piddly job. Leave the army for the army guys, not you, little 16-year-old, 20-year-old boy, somewhere in that general area that's what we're thinking about. And you know, 16 to 20-year-olds can be kind of punks, okay? Let's just be really honest with that. You guys already know that. And, and so the older brother already thinks his younger brother's a punk. So now you got double punk in all of this. And, and he's looking at him going, what are you doing here and why are you here? And David says this, I know your presumption in the evening. I'm sorry, this is the, the brother still speaking. The presumption in your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. You just want to see us die. You want to see blood and guts. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? I'm just, I'm just asking, bro. Just chill. I'm just here trying to figure out what's going on. I mean, that, that is literally his response in the whole thing. I'm just here. He turned away from him towards another and spoke the same way. And the people answered him once again as before. So David's trying to figure out this whole thing about what's going on with Goliath. And, and why isn't anybody standing up against him? Why is this all happening? And so we see from there that the words that David spoke were heard. And they repeated them before Saul. And Saul sent for him. So now he's going to the king. And we'll see a picture here of, of the future king and the current king and some things that take place. But this is what it says in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, me, David, will go and I will fight this Philistine. You see his boldness, you see his courage, you see his confidence. And Saul replies with this. Saul said to David, verse 33, you are not able to go against the Philistine and fight with him. For you're just a kid. There's been a man that guy over there has been a man of war since his youth. He's a champion. You can't do it. Saul's looking at David just as the world would look at David. Not possible. But we see in verse 34, But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the Lord. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hands of the Philistines. You know what David just did? He took it all, and he put it in perspective. I'm not sure about you. I have never run face-to-face with a bear. I have never run face-to-face with a lion. One has never tried to kill me. It's a good thing. I want to keep it that way. But I'll tell you, if it ever does come up, you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to grab it by the beard and try and strike it with whatever I have in my hand. That is just not going to happen because that is crazy. So we see in this that God has been preparing David for something pretty amazing. He has put him in there, and he's delivered him from the bear. He's delivered him from the lion. So we see the preparation taking place. And in this preparation taking place, he doesn't know what's next, but he knows God has something more for him. Doesn't that kind of sound like us sometimes? How many times have you been in a situation or in a circumstance or you're looking at life going, man, my finances are out of control. Man, my health is out of control. Man, my family's a mess. Oh, you, my job. All these things that we have this tendency to worry about, all these things we have this tendency to fear about, and God has brought us through or is currently bringing us through. 
And he says, God has brought me through this. He's going to get me through this next situation too. That is what we can see in all of this. Not that some guy mustered up enough bravery to go against a giant, but the fact that God is with us. And he even says that. This is the Lord's battle. And we see these difficult things, and we see what he says back to Saul in verse 37. He says, and Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. And then Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put on a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped a sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I can't go with these, for I have not tested them. So, so, so David put them off. I'm going to pause right there for just a second, because as he puts those things off, it's a vision of what's to come. Israel wanted a king. They found the most handsome, head, above, head and shoulders above everybody else guy, and they put him in place. They wanted to be like the pagans, and they did everything like the pagans. David said, I'm not going to be like the pagans. I can't go with all that stuff. I want to go with God. And that's a mood changer. That's a perspective changer. That is the way that we see things. And so as we see this play itself out, it says this next. Then he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved towards and came near to David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him. He looked once again, just like everybody else looked at David. You can't do this. For he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. I don't know how many times I've heard that. Just a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. People talk about me like all the time that way. And, and so it says, the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? Do you come at me with sticks? You know what the funny thing is? Somewhere... The Philistine missed the fact that he wasn't coming at him with sticks. He had five stones. And they're probably decent-sized stones if they're going to sink into this guy's forehead. So he missed that. I bet he would have seen that, and things might have been a little different, but it wasn't. So that's good. And it all works out for us. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Verse 44 says, The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And then David said to the Philistine back, You come to me, bro, with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come how? In the name of the Lord. God is on my side. In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defied, this day the Lord will deliver you, not me, the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down, and I'm going to cut off your head. What's one thing he didn't have? A sword. But yet he already knows he's going to cut off his head. It says this, and I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And we look at that and we say the battle is the Lord's. That is what this whole story is about. That it is God getting the glory because he couldn't do it by himself. God gets the glory from Elijah. Same thing. God gets the glory glory from, from Moses, same thing. God gets the glory from Jesus, same thing. It is the story of the gospel. It is the story of of the Bible. God gets the glory. We don't do it. We can't do it on our own. And that is what this is all about. He is demonstrating his glory through us as he's going to destroy the Philistines. That's strong. The battle belongs to the Lord. Verse 48, when the Philistines arose and came and drew to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in his forehead. The stone sank into, I love that picture, just, you know, the slow-mo version of this, the stone penetrating and going into his head. And he fell face down on the ground. 
Now, this is an important thing to understand because back in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines had actually captured the Ark of the Covenant. And they thought what they were going to do is they were going to take that Ark of the Covenant and they were going to put it next to their god, Dagon. And they were going to put it in his little temple and they were going to leave it there. Well, the next morning after they had put the Ark of the Covenant next to this false god, that false god had somehow fallen over on its face. And nobody could quite figure out why. Kind of a crazy little correlation here, but check this out. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. I'm sorry, I, I jumped a verse. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took a sword and he drew it out of his sheath. And he killed him and he cut off his head with it. You know that second part? The second day after they picked up that statue in 1 Samuel 5, do you know what happened? The second day they woke up and that statue had fallen over again and its head had fallen off kind of a weird correlation there as God says hey this is my battle I'm in charge here and then David ran and he took it like I said and you have step two of decapitation so step one he falls down to the ground step two the head's gone and, and it's just a crazy thing to think but the end of verse 51 says when the Philistines saw their champion was dead they fled and I'm not going to read the rest of it for time's sake but as you look at that you can see what God is doing you can see God moving in that direction and he is getting the glory in it all and you see the philistines get chased off and the israelites go after it and the whole atmosphere of everything changed when david stood up for god everybody behind him said god can do it and everybody on the other side said "Ooh, god can do it and it changed the atmosphere and it changed it all like i said there's three parts of the story and many of them in the bible first is that invincible character goliath Second is an impossible challenge. Try and beat me. But third is, is the improbable champion. The improbable champion is David. Just a shepherd boy. Just a kid. However, it was just a kid with a passion for God. Just a kid who wanted to see God lifted up. And that's the two things I think we need to hold on to in this story. And the two things that we need to walk away with is, number one, he had the factor that he was passionate for the glory of God. David never saw a giant. He only saw an uncircumcised Philistine that was defying God. The second thing is he was passionate, not just about passionate about the glory, but he also was confident in the power of God. Confident in the power of God. Are we confident in God's power that God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he's going to do? Are we confident when we pray that when he doesn't answer right away, we still know that he is who he says he is and he's going to do what he says he's going to do? Are we in that way? And I look at that and I say, we have this picture that is so much bigger than just a boy with bravery going against a giant. It is the picture of the gospel, the invincible character, the impossible challenge, and the improbable champion. How does that play out, though? How do we apply this? And, and here's what I wrote down. I think we need to pray two things this week, every week, every day. And the two things are this. First, we need to pray that God helps us live with a passion for his glory. Why do we live? Why do we breathe? Why do we exist? Is it for our glory or is it for God's? See, when we look at fear and we hold on to fear, a lot of times the reason why we're afraid is because we're afraid it's going to upset our comfort zone. We're afraid it's going to upset what, what we have and the things that we can control. And he says, I want the glory. And if you can control it, I don't get glory. You get glory. So we're going to take steps to give me the glory. That's what we are created for, to give God the glory. Our first prayer is, when we face giants, it's not about being the one who musters up the courage to take on the giant. It's about God getting the glory in the midst of us taking on those giants, whatever that giant might be. 
Whatever it might be in our life, the point is to be passionate about God's glory. Second application is this. Pray that God helps us to live with confidence in his power. Pray that God helps us live with confidence in his power. He doesn't just want his glory known. He wants his glory to shine through us. He wants his glory and his power known. So how are we doing that? What does our life look like in all of that? How are we leading? How are we directing? How are we moving forward? What is it? Where is it? There's a question I believe we have to ask ourselves. And today what I'd like to do as we close in prayer is I would like to pray those two things. And I'd actually like for you guys to repeat them with me, after me, during, whatever you choose to do. But pray that God, this week, you make me passionate, or help me be passionate about your glory. And God, this week, you give me confidence that you are who you say you are, and you're going to do what you said you're going to do to give us that passion, to give us that power, and give us that confidence. So that's what I'd like to pray today. So I'd like to just ask you to bow your head, bow your heart with me, and as we do that, take a look at this story and say, God, what have you for me this week that you're going to get glory and you're going to display your power? that you're going to give me confidence. So would you pray this with me? God, this week, help me to live with a passion for your glory. Pray that with me. Pray it aloud. Let yourself, let God, let your neighbors hear. God, this week, help me to live with passion for your glory. God, this week, help me to live with confidence in your power. Heavenly Father, we just pray that these aren't just words we're saying, but these are real, heartfelt changes that we need to make to our daily lives, starting this week, starting in just a few moments as we stand to sing, and as we stand to sing, that we praise your name, and we praise your name, and we give you the glory for who you are, and we thank you for all that you've already done, and thank you for what you're going to do. Give us the confidence to believe in your power. God, give us the, the ability to see who you are, and what you are doing, and how you're working in our lives. Change our hearts, change our minds, help us to live for you and not for our comfort. God, push us to where we need to go, to own that vision that you've put into our lives that each person in this room is a part of your vision to see yourself glorified and your power revealed to a world that is in desperate need of meeting you a world that is in desperate need of seeing who you are they are standing there they are mocking you they are standing there and they are defying you they are standing there and they're saying bring it God let us bring it with you on our side God let us take this message into a world that is desperately in need and may it be through our actions and not just our words may it be in what we do and not just what we pray change us use us Guide us for your glory and your honor and use your power to do it and give us confidence in it all. We pray it in your name. Amen. I'm going to be down here in the front and I would love to pray with you because I'm guessing that you somewhere this week are going to or already are in the midst of a challenge. That you are in the midst of something big going on in your life and it's a giant that everybody else is looking at saying you can't defeat that and you say I can't but God with me can. I want to pray with you. Maybe you also heard the first time the story of the gospel that Satan came, sin entered the world, and while sin entered the world, it seemed impossible to defeat death, but Jesus came down from heaven, lived a life that was for us, and died a death that was for us, and raised again to defeat that death so that we could have a relationship with him. 
I'll be down here in the front to pray with you. What a story for fall kickoff. I love, no matter how many times I've heard that story, whenever just reading the words and the bold declarations of King David, I just get fired up. Almost like when I hear bagpipes, I kind of just want to go charge a field and battle. That's how I feel when I read that story. I'm just like, yes, let's go conquer. Let's go take and expand the kingdom. Not that we have the ability to, but that we have an amazing God on our side that battles and just allows us to be a part of it and just witness his glory. So guys, will you stand with me as we just sing his praise and declare his amazingness?